Media Focus with Paul Blanchard. This week, TV news impartiality. Jon Snow has been criticised for an especially candid piece to camera about the Gaza conflict. Do TV journalists have a duty to stay impartial at all times? Virtual reality. Sky has upped its investment in Jaunt, a new immersive media startup. In the future, will we all be watching TV through headsets? And robots. Associated Press has said that some of its finance stories will now be written entirely by computers. What does this mean for journalists, readers, and indeed PR hacks like me too? Media Focus. And as usual, we're joined by two of the industry's best and brightest. Ian Dunt is editor of politics.co.uk and, more impressively, political editor of the Erotic Review, no less. And Dr Joe Twist, who is CEO of Yuki, the trade body that represents the games and interactive entertainment industry. First up, do TV journalists have a duty to be objective at all times? Last month, Jon Snow recorded an emotional video about Gaza. Posted on the Channel 4 website, the video called for people to do what they can to end the conflict, but he has been criticised for jeopardising his impartiality, despite Channel 4 backing him. Ian, journalists like yourself often let their views known in podcasts, op-eds and so on. Why should it be any different for TV reporters? Well, it shouldn't. Um, we've ended up in a very strange situation in this country, really. Uh, sort of the opposite, really, of the way that the American media landscape has worked, where the TV is sort of violently partial and the newspapers are much more objective. You read the New York Times, it's almost as boring as if someone put the BBC on a newspaper. That's exactly how it reads. I think that we've sort of got it a bit wrong, to be honest. I th- it's Obviously, there's a lot of goodness that comes from having the BBC play the role that it does. Even though it's a complex role and, and a fatally flawed one and one which it will never succeed in, it's good to have a national a broadcaster aspiring towards impartiality. Everyone else, I see absolutely no reason why they can't do as they please. As long as you have somewhere for the audience to go to that they feel is catering to impartiality, I don't see why Sky and Channel 4 can't go where they like. And especially, I have to say, when it comes to something like what we've been seeing in Gaza. Now, of course, when this happens in some African town somewhere, BBC journalists are not impartial at all. They go out there and they say this is diabolical. This is disgraceful. These people are killing children. Suddenly, because it's an ally of the UK, that becomes a much more you know, complex and controversial political discussion. I don't think it is. I think the same rules should apply either way. So even if we didn't have these impartiality rules, what Joan Snow said was perfectly legitimate and acceptable in its own way, not really much more interesting than what you'd see in Children of Need or something like that. But actually, as it happens, while we're on the subject, yeah, let's get rid of these impartiality rules. They're treating audiences like they're children. Doesn't the fact that some of the audience might feel alienated by him doing that call into question the fact that people won't trust him as much or that he's less engaging with the whole of the audience. I think that's a risk that he has to take on his own back. So I mean, the same thing, of course, could be said. I mean, the classic example would be the sun after the Hillsborough tragedy. Of course, many, many people in Liverpool after that moment decided they never wanted to read the sun again, and that was their choice. That's something that the journalist and the publication should be thinking about when they go ahead with the report, whatever the report is about, whatever stance they take. However... Once that's been done, I think people should be able to make the choice of where they want to read and the people should have the choice of saying it. Importantly, of course, with all of this is that, and I know I don't want to sound like I'm doing GCSE sort of, you know, English <laughs> literature, yeah. but I mean, there really is no objectivity. So when the, when the BBC comes on and says, well, look, there's two sides to this debate, in this they're saying, well, look, we have to take, you know, the same seriousness to, I think it's about 60 Israeli troops have died now. Um, as we do towards 1,750 Palestinian lives. Now, that, I would suggest, is not objective at all. That is a quite grotesque idea of what balance is, where both sides have to be equally represented, regardless of the truth on the ground. We see a similar thing with, um, with climate change. Climate change deniers, who are frankly 
you know, I, I, I'm probably more sympathetic towards them than most, but they're about 1% of the, of the scientific community would agree with that, are invited on to these debates as if it's a 50-50 thing. You're always going to get that when we have this push towards balance. That's one of the reasons I said what the BBC does is innately problematic because there simply is no objectivity for you to find. And once we're engaged in that dream that there is this utter reality that we're covering, that's when actually I'd suggest it's more propaganda-like, it's more dangerous towards misleading the audience than it was if we're a bit more honest about where we're coming from. Joe, do you accept Ian's point there that it's uh, this kind of pretense of objectivity is actually the worst kind of partiality? I think our concept of what uh, being kind of impartial and objective does mean, I mean, I, I used to be a journalist and we are humans. I know there's a piece later on in the <laughs> podcast about uh, will journalists be replaced by robots? But, you know, journalists are humans, humans for too. now, humans for now. And, you know, I think there's I'm interested in your point about whether that's a long term kind of aspiration that the BBC can continue to um, follow, which is to be that voice of so-called impartiality or and whether there's a difference actually between what we mean by impartiality and objectivity mm. and balance, because I think balance is, is possibly more of an interesting concept and a more kind of future uh, proofed one. I mean, can you just expand on what Oh, you're you more sympathetic be... towards balance. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Oh, you see, I feel quite the opposite way. I think you, you can aspire towards objectivity. You will never get there, mm. of course. I mean, even a CCTV camera doesn't get there. Yeah. But you can at least aspire towards it, and, and that's what we do, just like we aspire towards justice, knowing that, you know, it's always a fatally flawed endeavour. With balance, I think that you put yourself in a very dangerous position for several reasons. Firstly, it's simply not the case that there's always two perspectives on something. Sometimes one thing simply is the case. Sometimes five mm. arguments are the case. There's something in the human brain, I don't want to go too sort of academic mm. on all this, but there's something in the human brain that really likes uh, polar opposites. And we love splitting things into pairs and, and opposites. And I think that plays out in our news coverage. So it's always, you know, Labour versus Tory or civil mm. liberties versus, you know, uh, security. And actually, lots of the time, there's a much more nuanced range of options that when our obsession with balance sort of tempts us to actually simplify rather than properly explain issues. I mean, of course, we, we, we also are in an era where, and, and this has, you know, happened a lot in the States, where the newscasters become kind of pied pipers and they, you know, mm. anchor people become the personalities that you want to relate to and you want to believe and you want to be uh, educated by you know is that going to become are we going to become more americanized in the way that uh, news anchors or news hosts actually do treat the news in that way it's really interesting isn't it and i, I wonder if we will go that way I, I actually can't help to think that some of what john snow did was influenced actually i think by al jazeera and russia today being mm. part of the media landscape and that sort of muddying the ground a little bit about what you can get away with what's impartial and what isn't people's diets now are becoming increasingly used to their, their media diet, I should add, becoming increasingly used to actually hearing some degree of personal opinion on, on news programmes. I think he probably played into that. Will we go all the way to the American thing? I don't think so, because I think the British sensibility is quite different. British sensibility is quite wary of people who talk in absolutes, who feel very certain of themselves. And that's typically the kind of currency that Americans uh, d deal with, especially in their news, but actually in their general lives as well. But, Joe, put yourself in the, the seat of a producer of a radio show. If you've got, I remember um, the, the Andrew Wakefield MMR autism thing. Mm. Um, you know, the truth was that MMR did not, there was no evidence whatsoever that it led to autism. But if you're producing a show, you have to get a scientist on and then some, you know, crazy person there to provide balance because otherwise you're just going to be interviewing someone about... Do you see that from the media's point of view, it's actually quite difficult, isn't it? It is a real challenge. And I think, you know, really, I think for me, this goes back to how we are brought up with the media, how we understand how the media works. 
Um, you know, I think media literacy is an incredibly powerful tool. And it's not just about, it's not about at all how television is made or how radio is made. Technically, it's about understanding um, from very early age that actually nothing <laughs> is impartiality-led. Uh, you know, it, you can aspire, as you say, but there is no such thing as objectification. As long as you're armed with the tools and the literacy and the way in which you yourself as a, uh, you know, a consumer of news, so-called news, can actually start to deconstruct things, I think that's that's going to be the secret, actually, because kids now need to be able to have those tools, have those tools of literacy to be able to deconstruct and make their own minds up. Um, and we do need guides. We do need people who can help us understand really complex issues. And that is a key role for, you know, newscasters in particular. I suppose the ultimate question in terms of media literacy is that when you're watching or listening to a show, you've got to think, who owns this newspaper? Who owns this TV channel? Mm. Would, Absolutely. Would right? and, I, and I'm not sure that education does actually happen. Um, you know, I remember being quite surprised uh, when I found out that newspapers actually had political allegiances in the 80s in particular. And I was I was a bit shocked as a, as a young, young teenager. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was just a baby. No, I was a teenager. I was quite shocked. You know, I felt a little bit betrayed. I'd never been taught that at school. You know, maybe that was just my school. What you're left with, Ian, though, of course, is someone like me that's read The Guardian every day for 20 years, but, of course, would never admit to being a Guardian reader and, of course, quietly hates The Guardian and everything it represents. <laughs> Why do you keep on reading it? Is it some kind of sadomasochism? Because I'm a Guardian, Guardian reader and that's the, the typical <laughs> self-hatred that we have. That sounds right. I mean, I, I, I tend to think that actually the owner doesn't really influence things half as much as everyone thinks that they do. And, you know, the more you see that more and more now when you, you know, you get this, there's a building in Kensington just off the high street where about half the, the print journalists in this country work. You know, and it's the mail is there and the indie is there and the standards there and live TV is there. And it's not as if these these things are putting out a different output. I know, you know, they're, they're owned by different people. But you can you can amalgamate quite a lot of ownership, push lots of the journalists together, and you still get quite a different product. In the same way that you can go to a radio studio and see, you know, Classical FM will be right next to XFM, and, they're, you know, they're very, very close together, but something different comes out of it. I'm not entirely sure the owners have that much strength to them. I, I think there are other corporate concerns and financial concerns mm. around what dedicates our, what controls our coverage. I just think that it's, it's always very easy for us just to go, it's the advertisers or it's the owner, and that's it. And actually, I think it's, it's more nuanced and, and actually a bit more of a depressing picture than that. Uh, if it wasn't depressing enough, I th I, you know, I think it is depressing now um, because we do see that, particularly with online journalism and everything's moving to online, you need those clicks. Uh, you need that uh, advertising revenue. And so the more sensationalist the headline, the more sensationalist the story, the less nuanced it is, um, the, the perception is, the more clicks you're going to get. Yeah. yeah, I think that's true. And that's actually an extremely dangerous thing that's happening to us right now, mm. where even, I mean, if you look at what goes viral, caveats almost always stop something going viral. It's very bad. I mean, anything that performs when on Twitter or mm. on Facebook will not mention a caveat. So there's a drive towards simplifying headlines. And if you are going to talk about caveats, you put it way down in the story to, to stop people from not spreading it. I, really, a lot of that comes down to whether we can properly monetize digital journalism. And that, you know, is something that we're discovering now. We're looking at stuff like, like native advertising, which is potentially a very dangerous development where journalists are basically writing advertising copy. Mm. It's it's stamped with advertising copy. It says what it is. But nevertheless, you've got that corporate interest, the commercial interest 
in the newsroom affecting the same people who are doing the writing as the news stories. So there's some dangerous developments there. It's really it's incumbent on us to show that we can find a way to monetize the product. That's our best way of protecting the independence of journalism. I tell you what's incredibly clever. We had BuzzFeed on here a few months ago, and they can put out a story and know that you know twenty, thirty thousand people will read it within the next hour, and they can tr- test out. Uh, five or six different headlines and see which one uh, mm. works, which is the biggest clickbait. And I just think that's incredible. If we do this one negatively, we'll like people, make people click on it more. I just think it's amazing. And then get real-time feedback. And within an hour, they know exactly which one of the headlines is going to draw people to that and then we, run with that. Which makes my job very, very difficult. Um, you know, in the games industry, the games sector is is really misrepresented in the mainstream press. Mm. And it is all the sensational headlines. And it's headlines... Uh, such as, you know, games are addictive as heroin, which are wholly, completely unscientific and a load of nonsense. But you know that that's a big attention grabber for that particular uh, target audience, you know, and it's it's dangerous. It's quite rare, isn't it, to find something in, in the modern world that is so popular and so misunderstood as, as video games, actually. And, I mean, these are the largest entertainment releases sort of financially that you get. Mm-hmm. And yet you see an absolutely bruising response. I mean, the, the Telegraph the other day had this remarkable story where they put uh, a violent video game linked to three deaths. Linked, of course, is the word that you should be most wary of in any journalistic coffee. Yeah, it of means course. nothing. It means yeah. two it things means happen at the same time. it's been linked by the editor of the Daily Star. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and what happened was, I, mean, I think the game, was it World of War? I mean, it was one of those ones that's owned by God knows how many hundreds of millions of people. And of those millions of people, about three people had somehow had some altercation with someone who killed someone somewhere else. And instead you see this very concerted attempt by elements of the media to really try to strongly suggest that these things are somehow behind violence. Mm. Whereas, of course, they have about as much to do with violence as the new Expendables films. Yeah. Or wearing trousers. I'm a fan of wearing trousers, so on that point, <laughs> uh, we will, <laughs> we'll move on to the next topic if we can, which is, are virtual reality goggles the next step for TV? Last month, Sky increased its investment in the startup Jaunt, a company that lets broadcasters film TV shows and movies in 360 degrees and then play them back through 3D goggles. Sky isn't the only one investing in virtual reality either. Earlier, Facebook acquired Oculus Rift, a manufacturer of augmented reality headsets, for a whopping $2 billion. Joe, the gaming industry is leading the rest of this sector as usual. Are we all going to be watching TV through magic headsets in the future? The thing that always makes me laugh about these stories is that TV thinks that TV can continue doing TV in the same way TV has done something and then just stick some goggles on it and then amazing, it's completely different. I can't see a flaw in it myself. (laughs) The the, the great thing about the games industry is, uh, yes, you're right, you know, it does, uh, games do uh, consistently outsell album sales and DVD sales. And we are, you know, at a real tipping point for the industry. We've got this amazing growth of new talent. We've got people making games everywhere. We've got the barriers to entry being lowered. And we have these fantastic innovations, technical innovations, that's just pushing the boundaries uh, in what you can do with those immersive environments and those games um, you know, to, you know, beyond our wildest expectations. However, I do remember one episode of... Uh, Murder, she wrote, in which uh, Angela Lansbury donned a, a pair of uh, virtual reality uh, goggles. Um, it has been around for a long time. And it's classic kind of application. I read a lot of science fiction as well, by the way. And it's a Good. classic, uh, you know, technology that needs an application. I'm not sure if TV... I mean, I can imagine it working in kind of home shows and 
holiday shows. I mean, I watch those kinds of shows with great envy, wishing I had enough money to either, you know, do that home abroad buying mm. <laughs> uh, or indeed just buy a house. And do you secretly nice. hate all those people? I really I do. do. I, I, um, I can't admit it publicly, but I do. I envy yeah. their success and wish it for myself. <laughs> yes, I, I just think that it's going to end in, in hell yes. um, for them. And, to hell um, with them. Yeah, basically. But I would quite like to have a nose around those houses. But I think, you know, the difference between with games is that games are you know fully thought out incredible story worlds a lot of them are story worlds a lot of them are puzzles a lot of them are just different environments and you know fantastically realistically rendered a lot of hours of gameplay and exploration and fun uh, to be had in these things um, and that is slightly different to watching a tv program so i really hope that uh, sky actually looks at the potential of virtual reality in its fullest capacity and doesn't just innovate with the technology but innovates in terms of formats and the kinds of things that broadcasters do now. They should maybe think about not just broadcasting TV shows uh, that I want to watch for half an hour or an hour but actually creating new kinds of entertainment experiences which the games industry is leading in. Do you think there's something culturally though that's different between the two industries? Because I mean if you look at television it's basically been the same thing hasn't it for decades. If you take a TV news show one one year it'll have one anchor then it'll have two and then they'll have an upbeat music intro then it's a bit downbeat and then it's a more wooden set and then it's a bit more techno the, the year after. Whereas the gaming industry is consistently innovating in the formats itself. I mean I, I remember when the, when the Wii came out and I just thought it was nothing less than witchcraft and, and now you don't even you don't even <laughs> need a controller it can sense where you're pointing to it's just it is it's witchcraft isn't it it's uh, magic we like to say it's uh, <laughs> magic coding is magic but is there um, a cultural thing between the two industries there is a, there's a definite cultural bias and this goes through you know any kind of treatment of the industry uh, the games industry um i used to work at uh, some broadcasters and um i think there was an amount of fear i mean there was fear when twitter emerged there was fear when blogging emerged you know and i would sit in the room with some tv commissioners and you know, they would say, I don't know all about this digital stuff. Uh, it's your thing. <laughs> and as a commissioner of content, I believed in innovating across all different platforms because this is what the audience is doing. You know, I just think there's a real opportunity for entertainment to be redefined and diversified a lot more. I still love my telly watching experiences. I love I do. Breaking binge bad. watching. Yeah. Well, at the moment for me, it's RuPaul Drag Race um, on Netflix. But I love my telly. But I also love these experiences that the games industry offer. Where there's been attempts to uh, for broadcasters to get into games, it just hasn't really worked that well. And I think that's just partly a cultural understanding of what you're creating and the skill sets required to actually create these different kinds of formats and also just fear. You know, as I said, it's just a lot of it is fear. And I think broadcasters are quite used to their particular business models and ways of working. And you have an EPG and that's your discovery mechanisms and you have these things called channels. Um, and I really think now is the time. The industry, the games industry has just got tax breaks uh, in the same way that the film, high-end TV drama and animation industries um, have had tax breaks uh, for some years or animation TV came in last year. And so there's an incredible opportunity to for more developers and more uh, entertainment, interactive entertainment companies to be, well, just entertainment companies to be looking at what does this technology mean? What is it that's happening with games that makes millions and millions of people play them or even watch other people play them? Uh, it's this thing called esports and Twitch TV, Incredible. Uh, which Google has just uh, snapperooed. 
And, you know, 70 million people worldwide watched people playing games last year. Weirdos. <laughs> Ian, are you a gamer? I am, actually. Yeah, I quite like my games. Um, I'm going through a bit of a fallow period. I don't seem to be playing very much. It comes Good. and it goes, That's unfortunately. That's fine, yeah. And I sort of have these sort of six-month, one-year periods where I don't play so much anymore, and then it comes back a bit. Mm -hmm. And I'm right now going through a fallow period. I mean, I'm extremely excited about virtual reality gaming, actually. And that was partly that... Um, when you were growing up, did you guys watch out The Lawnmower Man? I did, yeah. yeah. I saw and, Jeff Fahey as well recently. He doesn't look like he did it in The Lawnmower Man, I can assure <laughs> you. He's a fantastic actor. <laughs> Twelve Angry Men, it was brilliant. Although I read Neuromancer first. Right, well, and Neuromancer oh. is a great book. Yeah, a great book, and it has that that wonderful first line about what the sky above the bay is the color of a dead gentleman. What that? That's 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 actually gloriously written. Lawnmower Man isn't. It's just schlocky rubbish. But oh, and by best the way, film Pierce Brosnan's ever done. Yeah, that's <laughs> highly controversial. <laughs> what you just said. Um, what it does have is, is it had the thing where it just introduces when we were very young. I remember looking and just thinking like that is happening. I want that, that. is happening, and I want it exactly. And finally, it feels like we're on the verge. Definitely. Sky, however, this is not a company that innovates. So what it has seen is that is virtual reality and there's a screen. So we have screens and now we're going to bring that here. But of course, television like cinema, the reason that it's such an emotional and powerful experience as a, as a medium is because it has such control over you. It controls what you're hearing. It controls you know, the words that you're experiencing. And of course, the images. It's dependent on the control of the image. You do not have a form of effective television or cinema that would allow the audience to select the image that they're looking at. If that did turn into a viable medium, it wouldn't be TV or cinema anymore. We're dealing with something else. Do you, do you think there's something to be said, though, Ina, for the, the kind of curation of the experience? So, for example, I used to read The Times uh, on their website, but there's almost the agony of choice where you end up reading three or four articles. I actually prefer reading it on the iPad, where I, it's a linear experience. I have to turn the pages, and things mm. that I would have missed on the website, I actually don't miss on the iPad because it's been brought to my attention more proactively, and they think, oh, I might read that. And that's very nice. And, and by the way, I feel the same way. I think that there is an opportunity with apps to bring back that experience, the linear experience of reading the news, and the chance that you might actually come across stories that you wouldn't have specifically chosen to read, which happens to us less and less the more that we find our news through Twitter and through Facebook, and we can create sort of yeah. bespoke information feeds. And mute people we don't want to know anything about. Yeah, well, yeah, it's a very common part, and how I spend much of my days. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Um, however, I don't, I don't think it's directly really comparable to, to the cinema experience, which is, you know, about, it, it's, it's supposed to be an art form whereby they control what you're getting. I mean, it's, it's saying that we can apply virtual reality to it. It's no different to saying, well, you know, we're going to mix up the words in the book that you're reading and see whether you still like it. It's like, well, I'd, you know. You know, I think there's something extremely powerful about the concept of co-presence. I know that everyone sort of got very excited about Second Life, which was a social virtual world. It wasn't really a game. It was a, you know, virtual world, which Forgive still Forgive me, what's co-presence? So co-presence is essentially being virtually represented and so if we were in virtual reality uh, environment now um, we could all be at our homes doing this podcast with our headsets on sitting down and we're co-present so we're not actually physically present but we feel like we are because we're represented through avatars i'd prefer that my avatar could have less of a rotund belly yeah actually. it's I like uh, you wouldn't need to wear my trousers <laughs> you know um so Second Life gave you that, and, and quite a few people have, have kind of said, mused that uh, Facebook might turn into the new Second Life, which, mm. um, and I, I was very involved in Second Life when it hit the hype cycle and then sort of, you know, brands got disinterested with it. Mm. And I remember in the early days of Second Life, I, I would go and participate in big debates. There was this uh, US uh, court sort of mock-up and this judge was doing a Q&A 
to oh, this was in Second Life. This was in Second oh, Life. And my friends and I, we were all living in different houses in London, but we, we decided to join this debate. So we're there as our avatars sitting and asking questions. Now, you know, then the flying penises would happen and then it, it sort of became ridiculous. And But, you know, you just ignore the flying penises. It's what people can do. I remember getting a call from my mother in about 2005, something like that, after she heard me on a Radio 2 Nightways programme or something. Um, talking about Second Life and what it was. Again, it was just as it was getting the peak, peak of the PR cycle. And she phoned me up and said, I finally understand what you do and I finally get it. So when I'm an old lady sitting... She's dead now. When I'm an old lady sitting in a old folks' home and I can't move and I can't... I don't have any more kind of life anymore because you won't come and visit me, blah, blah, blah. I can basically take part in this... I can do anything I like so I could be in this other world. And that's the, the core of uh, Marge Piercy's book. And I think that is the future that all of us who are obsessed with games and immersive environments are looking for. So hopefully, fingers crossed, I'm not sure Sky will be the ones to do it, but, you know, there's a great future there. All of which sounds absolutely fantastic. It just won't be, it won't be television or cinema, would it? I mean, unless in your virtual thing you can all go to the cinema together and watch it there, that'll be fine. Yeah, or... Or we can all, you know, be part of a studio, uh, you know, show that oh, will have that all, co-presence. And all of that know. will work. I mean, and the then one, throw the flying one area, penises around. Well, that would definitely be... I'll be there with a bag of flying penises, <laughs> mm. selling them at a profit so that we can, you know, spruce things up a little bit in question time. That's what it needed a little bit of. Little in bit Scotland, of we genitalia. call that a poke of penises. A poke of penises. That's very good. I'm glad that there's a collective noun. I, I was going I, to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and in fact... I, Surely all of that would work. I mean, obviously you think about things like internet dating could be fantastic if there's just some kind of virtual bar that you get to just sit in at night with presumably a much more attractive version of your face. <laughs> well, well, you know, you Not come possible out with, with your good selfie, yeah, of course. Right, but, uh... but for other lesser beings, I'm sure that that would be an attractive proposition. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that all sounds very attractive. It's just a question of understanding where things work and where they don't. And my guess is that a company like Sky will have absolutely no appreciation for that whatsoever. They should hire like some Facebook game designers and game developers. They probably should. On that Matrix-related note, let's go to the next topic. Will journalists be eventually replaced by robots? Fantastic or terrible news, depending on your viewpoint. Associated Press has announced that some of its finance reports will now be written entirely by robots. Just simple articles for now based on business quarterly earnings reports. But a number of tech companies are in the process of writing new software that can author more complicated stories. So, Ian, with seemingly no human journalists at all in the future, how are the pubs going to stay in business? <laughs> I don't know. I, I have a feeling that there are enough other professions that enjoy drinking so that they may, may still find some market for what they're trying to sell. I'm not so sure. But carry on. <laughs> I mean, I can have sympathy insofar as, I think, you know, the three of us, we've all been journalists around this table. A five, you know, five par, you know, quick nib. A machine probably could write that. I mean, given the appropriate data, getting the data is another thing. But, you know, journalism of that type is supposed to be, it's a trade, right? It's not an art form. And in fact, whenever you get sort of like a bright young thing at the age of 21 who clearly wants to write a book, you think, oh, actually, I know you think you're going to be good at journalism, but actually that's not quite what you've gone in for here. It's not very arty-farty. However, it's perfectly obvious robots can't do it. Not least because of, A, we have a staggering... Uh, inability to create real artificial intelligence. I know that the other day there was a story that the Turing test had been passed by this supposed artificial intelligence. Really, if you look into that, it was absolute hogwash and it absolutely has not done. We can get them to do all sorts of acts of mimicry. Machines really can't understand the context of words. It's very strange. It's this one thing. I mean, you know, at, at the time, it was expected that the Turing test would be passed around the turn of the century. And really, we're no closer to it than we were you know, when Alan Turing was around. 
we just can't get them to understand the context of words and and according something value having a sense of what it means in a broader context for society or for power relations or for someone's career we are so far away from the point where a robot would ever be able to do that that it's it's frankly ridiculous to you know that we're even talking about it really i mean we it, it's as, it's much much further away than the sort of utopian idea of virtual reality that we've been talking about a moment ago I mean, if it's even humanly possible to achieve, it won't happen within our lifetime. But do you think that computers are going to take an increasing role in terms of prioritising the content? We're already looking at BuzzFeed and a variety of websites analysing different kinds of clickbait. Might they be making journalistic decisions based on that? That's very interesting, yeah. And in fact, that is happening quite a bit. And I know uh, the i100, which is the the independent sister paper's online operation, which just, I think, a couple of weeks ago probably opened, Mm is using an algorithm for its front page in the same way that many websites are now. The algorithm is not particularly complicated. It's basically traffic, but there's some kind of mechanism within it to make sure that something that's getting a bunch of traffic now replaces, you know, the thing about how Indian men have small penises and that you know, has, has had traffic for the last three years. So there is some mechanism for what's new, but yeah, they are using algorithms for that. I think you will always find that that is used for sites which are very sort of viral-based, which are looking for traffic above all else. For instance, I think... I would be very surprised if we ever saw The Independent, its front page, go along there, because really what The Independent wants to do is to give you more of a curated experience, as we were talking earlier, going, look, here's an important story. You may not have heard of it before, but we are presenting it to you here. You know, you're trusting us above our banner and our brand and the idea that you are like us to tell you the story about, you know, an asylum seeker who was treated badly or the fact that all the dolphins are going to die or or whatever else. So my hunch is that that will remain. And actually, when you look at other very successful online operations like Vice, Vice are very far away from following that kind of model. Vice are much more of the persuasion of taking a story that you don't know and saying, look, you know who we are, you know we will present this to you in an entertaining way. Here, find out about something you don't know yet. So it sounds like journalists aren't going to be replaced by robots, but maybe lazy subs might be, who we can all agree are beneath contempt. (laughs) I tell you, I wish 10 years ago I had a robot writing the games chance stories on a weekly basis that I used to have to write because there's not a lot of variation in words you can use when you're doing a story about the top 10 charts. And ironically, it's my organisation that puts out that bloody data in the first place now. Um, But, uh, yeah, I agree. I think it's a combination of... uh, a lot of semantic analysis is getting increasingly sophisticated, and that is done by uh, software that humans make. You know, let's not forget, humans are always behind algorithms. Uh, humans actually, you know, coders will inherit the earth and are inheriting the earth. Um, and I think there is a lot of analysis, a lot of uh, AI that is getting increasingly sophisticated. AI learns all the time. And we must not forget that. Again, I've seen Terminator 2. I, I, I know, that. I know. It's going to end in a global learns. thermonuclear apocalypse, isn't it? <laughs> well, maybe gamers will inherit the world because uh, people <laughs> who make games deal with AI and code AI. You know, the things that, that make, um, you know, other characters, uh, NPCs, we call them, non-playable characters, react to certain things that you do. There's billions of different combinations of things that react to the environment when you do something. That's really sophisticated programming and AI and coding that goes on behind that. Um, some of that is being, you know, crossing over and being applied to this kind of thing, uh, not necessarily writing the stories. But I think it's a, it's a really interesting area that I don't think we should underestimate. But I do think that the, the role of the journalist is still safe, uh, as per, you know, the item earlier in the show. Um, I think you need that human, that human filter and that human kind of interpretation. But I think it's a really interesting concept. And I think... We shouldn't underestimate it. We'll underestimate it at our peril. What's interesting, I have to say, is 
more this idea of ruling out the journalist economically because they're pricey. I mean, mm. relatively, they still get paid nothing, but you know. But for, it's far too much if you ask me. Right, I can imagine you feel that way. But, um, <laughs> you know, for companies that don't have that much money, they, they like to get rid of them. If you look at what was said by the guy that's running Local World, who owns a bunch of local newspapers, the appalling tosh that this monkey of a man was coming out with starts saying that he wants people to upload their own press releases for the section of a local news website. So he was actually opening the idea that the police would upload their own press releases and that would be the crime section of a local newspaper. So you can I, see the I way- can't see any flaws in that plan no, whatsoever. You know, you're going right. to get a fair sure. and impartial unbalanced yeah. coverage. And, and they would exert supreme <laughs> scrutiny of their own behaviour. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I feel no doubt about that. Maybe the AI should be editors. I mean, that, that would also be extremely dangerous. <laughs> yeah. um, they could just insert lying scum PC whatever said yesterday <laughs> and they just automatically just put lying scum. <laughs> Or just instead of said, they could just say lied. It could be a global fi- find and replace, couldn't it? So long as they don't mention Scunthorpe, they're fine. <laughs> Most of that will follow, I think, really from laziness and you know the fact that we haven't found the market for, for what that we haven't been able to monetize what we do, and so you will get more of that kind of idea. The AI thing. I mean, I, I just think we we are just so far away from it really understanding the meaning of words properly in a human sense. Mm from being able to send sort of currents of, of power and of politics and of narratives. I mean, really, there's no sign, I don't think, that the AI I, can I agree them. with you, because in a sense, one of the things that frustrates me when I'm typing things out is we still don't have a context-sensitive spell checker, you know, words that are spelled correctly, mm. but not in that context. It's the wrong word, and it's it's still not clever enough to point out that, uh, that there is spelt correctly, but it's the wrong there. I think we word. can do, just no one's deployed it. But would you trust an article that was written by a news bot more than you would say a human being? Because if you think mm. about it, when you buy the Guardian or you buy the Sun or you buy the Times, you're buying it to learn the facts, but you're clearly buying a lens through which they're going to view those facts. And you, you do that knowingly, don't you? And isn't it funny when you know something, when you know a lot about a subject? So if you see a, 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 an article about your profession or, you know, something you really, really know, your hobby, and it's it's amazing how many inaccurate facts there are in a lot of reporting mm. of this you know and if you take that as something that's just because you know about that subject really in depth you know you start to think about the other stories which you don't know about and i think ai and algorithms and that kind of analysis you know if you look at uh, the way that uh, supercomputing power can completely analyze large large scale data like that that's the basis upon which a story is written we're probably not there that the story can be written by a bot, but we will be. Well, we've run out of metaphorical tip, and this is the last podcast because we're all going to be replaced by robots for the next podcast. <laughs> That's so, fine, uh, yeah. <laughs> That was quite a good robot voice, Thank actually. You. <laughs> uh, but you can desist from doing that now. Um, so I think what we need to do now is just let the listeners know how they can stalk you and follow you on Twitter and social media. Joe, should we start with your good self? I am at Docto, D-O-C-T-O-E. Ian? I am Ian Dunt, at I-A-N-D-U-N-T. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Paul W.R. Blanchard. If you want to visit our website at mediafocus.org.uk, you can leave your email address and sign up to receive notifications. And when the next podcast comes out, we'll let you know. The associate producer was Jordan Greenway. You'll be listening to Media Focus. I'm Paul Blanchard. Catch you next time. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!